This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Pelican Built Tough. For all situations, go to pelican.com. Yak Gadget. For all your fine kayak fishing accessory needs, go to yakgadget.com. Eastport Marina on the beautiful shores of Dale Hollow Lake. For all your lodging, kayaking, and fishing needs, go to eastport.info. Now let's get this show started. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of Feather and Fur. Your host, Brad Hurlbus. And tonight we have Jacob Lytle. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. It's going good. We're we're recording early. It's Wednesday, so halfway through the week, which is always good. Weather's been really nice out. Last night, I'm coming off a win, my second win of the year for a kayak fishing tournament, so I'm in a good mood. How's your week been? Yeah. Oh, it's been great. Just been out uh, running bird dogs, trying to stay out of the heat a little bit. It's kind of warm here in Tucson. It's 107 degrees today, so... Uh, just been getting out early and running, but that's about it. That's not kind of warm. That is incredibly hot. <laughs> like that, that's like thermometers shouldn't even go that high. Like that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So how, I'm assuming you're running them real early in the morning, like as the sun's coming up. Yeah. I mean, even that's not, not cool enough. It's still like 90 degrees, uh, oh. but you know, so really the only way to get away from the heats to go up to high elevation and, you know, so you get up around 8,000 feet or so, and, it, and it's 70 degrees in the middle of the day. Sure, sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. So that's, that's what we've been, been trying to do as much as we can. But, you know, it's an hour, two-hour drive to those places. So That makes it hard. That, I mean, yeah. that, that, that's not just a quick after-work run anymore. Sure. So I'm assuming, that's, we're, I'm assuming that's public land. Are you allowed to run your dogs year-round on the public land around you? Um, technically no, uh, it's, you're not, you're not allowed to pursue birds year round is is the way it's stated, but, um, you are allowed to run your dogs, exercise your dogs. We, we just try to go to places that, uh, don't necessarily have birds, if that makes sense, you know, so we we try to target, target areas that, yeah, they're kind of transitional habitat that really doesn't hold birds and, um, you know, we don't, we're not going to run into coveys and bus coveys and broods and things like that. That makes sense. Cause in Wisconsin, you, a dog has to be on a six foot leash between April 15th and July 31st or August 1st. I think you can start running again in August 1st, except in a designated dog training area. Right. So that's why I was curious. Cause like that's completely different. Now there are some different exceptions, I believe. People training, that's for bird dogs and other things like that. I believe people training bear dogs have a bigger window. They're allowed to run in the summer, if I remember correctly. 
I don't run bear dogs. I, I have friends that do. I just, I'm not super knowledgeable on that one. But if I remember correctly, it is legal for people actively training bear dogs. But for us guys that run birds, we have to go to the designated areas or run private land. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, last thing you want to do is get out there and have your dog you know, mess up a, a brood or, you know, gobble down some chicks or something. So try to try to keep away from them and keep pressure off of them. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. We jumped right into the show, which is not how I normally do things. So I'm a little off. <laughs> I'm a little off canter. No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. But I do want to start like I do because I really do like to get a background. So how did you? I just want to know how did you get into hunting? Was it a family tradition? Did you grow up with bird dogs, or were you in your 20s and you're like me and like, hey, this looks awesome. Let's do it. I mean, I definitely grew up in a hunting family. My my dad's from Oklahoma. Mom's from Tennessee. Um, I grew up in Tennessee. And, uh, you know, my dad had bird dogs and grew up in great quail times and quail country, you know, so um, he kind of carried that on when I was a kid. So I got I got my first bird dog at eight years old. Um, I had a little orange and white Brittany and um, I've had had Brittany's ever since and um, didn't really get to do a whole lot of hunting for for Upland and, you know, high school and college because that's kind of like the time that Tennessee quail hunting really took a hard dive. Sure. Um, but, you know, after I got out of college, we started hunting all over traveling to go hunt and things like that. Had, had a little more money, had a little more time to get out and, and do that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, that's, I started, started really young and, um, wasn't very good at it, of course, as a kid, <laughs> and, you know, uh, didn't learn how to train a bird dog until, you know, years later, but, um, learned a lot of what not to do when I was sure. younger. So that's where I started. Yeah. But being eight running around with your, like your own bird dog, right. Cause I'm sure your dad was the one actually training it, but it was your bird dog. Yeah. So when I was seven, we actually got a, uh, my dad got a bird dog. Um, and it was a, it was a dropper. So it was a setter pointer cross. Okay. Um, that somebody, somebody just gave to him, you know, it was an accidental litter and he just said, sure, I'll take it. Um, and it didn't, it didn't really work out. It was kind of, kind of wild. And so when he got rid of that one, um, he passed it on to somebody that could, that could train it a little better. And, uh, I guess the story goes that I threw a big fit, you know, being seven. And so I made him buy me my own bird dog. So <laughs> My, my grandparents arrived from, from Arkansas. They, they swung through Arkansas and picked up a Brittany on the way out. And uh, I had my first bird dog at eight years old. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And so Brittany's obviously have a special place in your heart. How many Brits do you have now? I just have two. Um, okay. It's a mother, mother and daughter. So I got, I got a Brittany um, right since I got out of college. I got, I got another Brittany and, um, didn't have any dogs at the time in college at college is right. way too much for a dog, you know? Um, so I got a Brittany right out of college and then, you know, when she was about five, we, we bred her and I uh, kept one pup out of the litter. So, um, I've got two now she's the mother's actually nine now. So it's been, it's been a little while, but, um, yeah, I've got, got those two and six dogs total. So a few so you have more than Brittany's now. So you branched yeah. out a little bit. Yeah. So now I've got uh, three setters, two Britneys, and a black lab. All right. So you have so I've talked to other people out west that really like running a flushing pointing combo. Is that where you're at as well? Yeah. So I I have um, trained my lab to work with my pointing dogs. All right. Um, and it wasn't the the intention initially, but as we were exercising all the dogs together and free running and things, she just kind of learned how to behave in the field. Um, and she started, started honoring point for the other dogs. And, uh, we just really encouraged that and kept going with it. And, and now she will, she'll back the pointing dogs. Um, a lot of times she spots them on point before I even do. And as soon as she spots them on point, you know, to a lab a stop is, is sit. She's a, sure. a trained retriever. So, um, so as soon as I see her sit, you know, I know I've got dogs on point somewhere that she can see. And, uh, 
I, I taught her a command to, to go flush the birds and the, the pointing dogs work together with her and they let her flush and um, it works out great. So sometimes, you know, if you, if you don't have a flushing dog, um, the birds can move a lot more. It can get away from you a lot faster before they really get up. Sure. But, you know, especially like on gambles and scale quail, when you, when you have that pointing dog around their heels, you know, snapping at them, um, they don't have much time to run. They, they hit the air pretty quick. That's awesome. I, I, that whole f- philosophy there is like really different to me because I've never hunted. Like I've had, I take that back. I've never had my own dogs do that, but I ran a lab for years and my good friend, friend um, runs a setter. So we, I have worked the flushing dog and pointing dog combo, but it was really unique because his setter was born deaf. So it was a really unique scenario. And my lab was trained on a whistle set. He never backed because we never, like, we would run the dogs together. We never formally trained anything together. But my dog had a good whistle sit. So if his dog would go on point and he would call out a point, I would just whistle sit my dog. And then we would try, and then just whoever, he would normally go in and try to flush the bird because that's his dog on point. And if he couldn't find the bird, then we'd set the lab in to flush. And he was just a little monster. He's not little. He was a big monstrous machine that... (laughs) wouldn't let any tree branch or anything get in his way. So no matter how tight that woodcock wanted to hold, it was game over. He was going to find it and move that bird or bring it back. Right. To right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's a really, it's a really neat way to hunt because uh, you know, if you're, especially if you're hunting, if you're guiding or something and you have clients um, it allows them to, to kind of stand back a little further when you're hunting tight holding birds um, so they're not, they're not in the middle of the cubby rise, which means they can, you know, gather their sights quicker and, and try to get a bird faster and easier. So it's, it's pretty effective that way. Um, but yeah, you gotta have a dog that is trained to that level. <laughs> otherwise it's a, it's a mess. Right. Otherwise you have point, otherwise you have dog, dogs flushing, pointing, and then you got yeah, pointers that absolutely. start to break because now they're getting frustrated and your whole yep. entire training program goes downhill like a, like an avalanche real quick. Absolutely. Yeah. I can, I can see it when you put the time in that and the payoff and the reward is just there. But if you're not going to spend that amount of time training, I can just see it being nothing but a giant frustrated fresh frustration and the headaches would just be terrible. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we really just did it because the opportunity presented itself. I had never really hunted that way before. Um, you know, our, our lab was our duck dog, you know, she's sure. trained to do blinds and, and marks and all that kind of stuff. And so it was just kind of another use for her to, to kind of fit into the, to the group. And she just loves it. I think she likes it more than she does anything to do with retrieving. I'll say this, my lab he was steady, but he was impatient. He was very high strung and you could keep him steady. Eventually you'd have to like, let him walk around or run around or burn off a little energy. Cause he couldn't sit for six hours straight. And I don't blame him. I right. can't sit for strict six hours straight. I know there's dogs out there that can, I know you can train to that level. I just let my dog go run, swim through the decoys occasionally if birds weren't working just to burn some energy. <laughs> but like he loved upland hunting. Like you could see the difference in his eyes. Like he was, he loved chasing grouse through the woods up and over trees and through under pines. Like he just loved it. And that's what really drove my passion to hunt those woods and hunt grouse just based off of how much that, that lab just loved it and how much he shined doing it. So it's not the first time I've personally seen or heard of a lab really just enjoying that running in the uplands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, a lot of people use labs for, for just that reason, but um it just wasn't something that we expected. So we just kind of, kind of rolled with it. And I, I enjoy the heck out of it, especially on Mern's quail. Um, Cause you know, the dogs will frequently, they'll, they'll point them eight, 10, 12 yards away. And it's just enough space for the lab to get in there and work and, and get the birds in the air. And, and uh, it's a really, really neat thing. I didn't know. So let's talk about, the, I, I, I don't remember all the species of quail. I don't, like I have to get down there and hunt them. So it's like ingrained in my brain of what's what, and what's habitat, where. So I know Merns gambles. So you just said Merns hold tight. Like oh, I wouldn't, yeah. ex- I, like, I guess I didn't expect like they would hold, like you could get your dogs get to like 10 yards and pin these birds. Like, 
Like I wasn't expecting that, that type of open. Cause I picture quail country as more open country. Am I completely off base? Uh, no, for, for Merns, it's, um, a lot of hill country. So they're, they're more of a mountainous bird. Um, you can find them down in the valley areas and canyons, but, um, you know, they, they live all the way up to, to 9,000 feet, you know, so they, they, um, definitely enjoy having sloped hillsides and canyons and, and mountains to be on. Um, but yeah, they, they do hold tight. Um, they're quite a bit different. We have, we have three species here. We have the, the scaled, we have the gambles and the merns. Um, and they're all three very different and they have very different habitats and uh, makes it a really neat thing that you can kind of go pick where your bird's at and, and, and what species just depending on what location you go and what elevation and um, that kind of thing. But they, they're all have their own little nuances and they, they all have their own uh, habits and it's, it's really, really fun to, to get out and hunt different species. But um, for the Merns, basically, uh, I don't think there's another quail in the U S that holds as tight as the Merns. Um, I would say a, a good second would be Bob white, but um, right. in, you know, there's been multiple instances where I've recorded, my friends have recorded people. I've seen videos that, people can walk up onto a covey on the ground and record the birds on the ground with their cell phone, you know, um, because they, they just sit that tight. And uh, the big reason for that is that, that they, they're constantly in cover. You know, you think about other quail, they, they have a, uh, a lot more sparse cover. So they, they kind of hunt or they kind of, they kind of live in little grass clump areas, you know, or, or tree clump areas, bush clump areas. And there's dead space between all that habitat and they have to move from piece to piece. And when they're exposed, they're moving really quickly and they're, they're, sure. you know, alert for predators. The merns are constantly in grass, you know? And so their, their natural mechanism defense is just to just hunker down Makes because the sense. whole time they feed, the whole time they get water, um, it's always in the grass. They're always, always undercover and they just, they just sit and it, and it, it works out beautifully for hunting because it's really forgiving for dogs and, and hunters and it makes a really, really nice hunt. So that's gotta be slight challenge. Ah, maybe not. I take that back. I'm assuming the dog start to tell the difference in the species and the scent and about how much pressure they can put on each species. As I say, it's probably a challenge for the dogs, but thinking about it, a lot of grout, like grouse hunting, they can, Depending on the time of year, sometimes they can handle pressure, but a lot of time if the birds are high pressured, they don't take pressure from the dogs and they'll break early. So the dogs learn to not put as much pressure on it, but my dog will work woodcock tight. So I take it back. I was thinking that it would be hard to train the dog if you have tight holding quail like like the merns, but then other quail don't like the gamble don't, doesn't hold tight. I feel like it'd be complicated for the dog, but thinking to my own dog, they're smart enough to figure that out. They know the difference. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, absolutely, and dogs, dogs do a really good job of uh, connecting objects and places too. So, um, just the, just the, the habitat change is going to change how the dog hunts. Sure. So, well, let's go, let's talk gambles then. So are gam will gambles hold good for your dogs or. Um, gambles they... have a, a reputation for being a running quail, just like a, like a scaled quail. Those two are, you know, known for taking off and you might track them a hundred yards before you ever catch up to them. Or sometimes you might ever catch up to them. Um, but they're, they're known as a, as a running quail species. Um, but I say that with a, with a caveat because, um, there are habitats that you can hunt them in where they, they will hold very tight and 
it's just like hunting Bob White. It, they'll sit for the flush and you basically have to walk up and kick the bush to get them to fly. And sure. so it kind of, kind of depends. And um, most of the time that I, I find them when they're running is when it, they're like kind of in an open wash or when they're in like a, a sparse hillside or, or flat. Um, but if you, if you find them in a, in a cactus thicket, you know, sometimes here we have prickly pear thickets where the, the prickly pear might blanket an entire hillside, you know, so you might have 50 yards wide of, of prickly pear and, you know, one patch. Um, and when they get in that, they, they sit and they hold really, really well. And uh, you can get some really nice bird work and dog work out of that. But, so but I, overall, they're, they're known as a running species. Got it. And that makes sense. There's always, there's always an exception to every rule. Always. The minute I say, oh, birds do this, they show me that they don't do that, that they do something completely different. So I completely yeah, understand. Um, anyways, but I, what I wanted to ask about those, like the prickly pear, like I think cactus and I think like thorns on your side and like what you see in movies, like comedies and whatnot. But like explain the explain the habitat a little bit to me because i've never been to arizona like in that area i've been out there back in my day when i used to take part in desert racing but other than that like and that wasn't that was short course off-road it wasn't even desert racing it was short course off-road so like what's prickly pear like it's like if when your dogs walk in are they just beat all beat up like can you walk through them like how thick is it um you can you can generally walk through it and avoid it um and you, you learn pretty quick that there are no cactus proof brush pants like they just don't exist you know the, the best the best way to not get a cactus stuck in your leg is to not touch the cactus um, got it and and you know i've tried every one of the sun i mean short of having leather shafts on i don't i haven't found anything that's cactus proof and you know it's too hot to wear leather out here anyway so sure but, um the dogs dogs don't have an issue with it they, they learn pretty quick that, that stuff hurts and stay away from it um, the only time that they really get into it is if the grass is really tall and the cactus is kind of short and they'll yeah, end up yeah. running into it before they ever see it. And then you spend about, I don't know, five, six hours pulling cactus out of your dogs after the hunt. So, um, so they do, so they do take them with them when they go, got it. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. And, and it's really, it's not even the big spines of the problem. They have like little, um, they call them glockids that, uh, little irritating hairs basically they're real real tiny spines and you have to get those out to the dog or they'll they'll abscess and cause all kinds of sure. problems and so it takes it takes a, a while but um will the those, dogs learn pretty good well will those little uh, those little spines will those travel like a grass on like can they actually make it into the dog and start to travel or do they Not pretty usually. much Okay. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever ran into that in your hunting. Like there's like the foxtail is a grass on that I'm careful of because they can actually migrate through a dog, creating a big abscess trail and make their way to the heart and other, other organs killing a dog effectively. Yeah. We, we have, you know, a lot of grasses that do that here, but Got um, now the cactus, they, they're usually stuck where they're at and they, you know, they might break off under the skin and cause problems, but they don't usually migrate. Sure. No, that, that, that makes sense. More like a sliver that like in yeah. a way, but not a sliver. You not that anybody wants any type of sliver, but hundreds of little slivers. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they first think of hunting in Arizona, this person, they're kind of, their mind imagines is the, the saguaro and the prickly pear and all the cactus and everything. But it's, it's really just a small portion of where we hunt, you know, um, when we hunt in Mern's country, it's, it's really savanna. It's more grassland. There's really no cactus. It's got oaks. It's got um, canyons and, and waist high grass everywhere. Um, it's very different. And then, you know, when we hunt scale quail, it's a lot of big open flats with, with essentially no trees that the scale quail don't really tolerate it. But um, it, it's the cactus is only a small part of what we hunt. And so it's kind of a, a misconception for a lot of people until they come out here. And they see for the first time, wow, there's a lot more to hunt and a lot different, a lot of different types of habitat. Um, so it's not, not always cactus. You're not always trying to dodge cactus. You're not always trying to pull them out of the dogs and stuff. It's just, you can, you can actually hunt all season and avoid cactus altogether. See, when I think Arizona, I was thinking more mountainous 
less cactus, more like that savanna you were talking about. And I always forget like you have areas with cactus. Like to, I don't know why I don't associate that with hunting. I don't probably because I never hunt in cactus. But yeah, like, I know from like what I've talked about, like with other Arizona habitat, I think like those like the savanna areas, like what you talked about in hillsides and um valleys, things like that. And like my first thought is it you're walking through cactus patches. Like if yeah. I came out there like on my own and like, I'm like, Oh, we're going to go, we're going to go hunt some merns. And like, I get over there and I'm like, what the heck is this? Yeah. <laughs> that hurt. That hurt. Where'd that come from? But, but basically the only place to really hunt that has cactus in it is when we're hunting gambles. Gambles. Um, All right. And like I said, you know, they have, they each have their own habitat, you know? Um, so it's, it's just different. Gambles, gambles are kind of unique in that way that they're more, they like a lower elevation. Um, okay. And so it, it tends to be warmer. It tends to be more cactus and less grass and less trees. Um, well, less, less oaks and things like that. Uh, there's lots of mesquite and that kind of stuff, but um, yeah, it's just, you get to kind of take your pick on what you want to hunt for the day and uh, where you want to go and that kind of thing. So if you want to torture yourself and the dogs and have a hot hunt with cactus, <laughs> <laughs> yep. you can choose that yeah absolutely and you know if, if if you really want to torture yourself you can pick a place that has cactus and no grass underneath and those gambles are going to run they're going to see you from 100 yards out and they're going to take off running and you may never catch up to them and yeah oh even better even better yeah that's that it depends on how bad your misery is if your dog's been acting <laughs> up all week fine we'll go hunt yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can go chase the birds in that. You let me know when you find them. <laughs> well, that's that's cool. Like the different habitats, that's that's just fun, right? Because you're able to. And how far? Like how long does it take? Like average to get to? Are we talking a couple hours? No matter which direction you go, or or some of them you're actually making a pretty decent drive, and you're going to spend like a weekend chasing those birds. Um, Arizona is a big state, and Right. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna drive. I mean, there's not, you can't hardly, if you live in the city area, you, you really can't get much out of the city and to a hunting place in less than an hour, you know? Sure. That um, makes sense. So you, you're going to drive a little bit, um, but there's millions of acres of public land that you're driving to. So uh, sure. it's totally worth it. So is that BLM? Like what, what is the public? Is that state of Arizona land? Um, it's, it's BLM, it's state trust, uh, and it's uh, national forest as well. All right. Um, so we have all three and got mostly, I would say around Tucson, there's probably a, a higher percentage of, of state trust, but, um, most of the mountain ranges are, are covered in national forest land and there's BLM just kind of sprinkled out through here and there, you know, different little plots, but, um, there's there's no shortage of, of places to go hunt for public public land birds. That's always a good thing. By me and where I live close to a city in Wisconsin, there's public land, but it's very small sections of habitat. And I don't have any grouse around me. There is pheasant areas around me, but Wisconsin doesn't have a great wild pheasant population. They supplement it with put and take all DNR pen raised birds, which is something I don't truly enjoy hunting. I prefer to hunt wild birds. Now, if I'm taking out some people that have never hunted before, it's a super safe, easy way to get people out hunting, things like that. It can be very controlled. Um, but I have to drive a few hours to get into like the better habitat and things like that, which is national forest and state land. So I completely understand what you're saying there, but there's some advantages though to having to like get away because then you can kind of like shut down that normal life and just focus on the hot great way to like reset yeah absolutely and you know it's just it's it's different from anywhere else that you can hunt really i mean it, it's just vast there's just massive swaths of public land with no houses on it no no inhabitants at all you just just natural land you know and um it's really really nice but i mean it's not that i have anything against uh release birds you know my wife and i ran a, a hunting preserve for a few years in tennessee and they definitely have their place but man if you have the opportunity to hunt wild birds it's, it doesn't even compare that's how i feel as well like nothing against it um i go on 
we, I buy my work buys birds. I take my dog with, I take clients out. If you want to call them clients, there are work clients, but I let, I mean, it's a great, I love using that as a tool to introduce new hunters because it's super controlled. The birds normally hold tight, depends on the preserve. Some of them actually do, do actually flush pretty wild, which those are the ones I would prefer, but the ones that hold tight are really good because then you're able to get people into position, safe shooting lanes, things like that. I think it's an amazing tool for getting dogs back up to speed in the, right in the fall because you're guaranteed to get them on birds. I think it's a great tool for new hunters. But if I have my choice between hunting preserved birds or hunting wild birds, I'm going to choose wild birds every day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's a different experience. And even if the birds acted the same, I think I would still be on the same page because it's a wild bird. You're going into their habitat. Now you're using your knowledge to try to pick that habitat apart to get you and the dog in the right area of this habitat to find the birds. And then when you get the points or you get the flushes and you get that bird, it's just all that. It's just that much sweeter knowing like your knowledge, the dog work and everything outsmarted this bird that's been living its life running from predators from day one. Yeah, absolutely. You, you bested an animal at its own game, you know, and right. Um, we're, we're kind of handicapped in every, every way, except for a gun. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a really cool thing, but also, you know, it, it kind of adds to, to the, the destination side of hunting, like um, where it's not just, a simple little event, you know, it, it makes it feel like you're, you're really like on more of a, an expedition than you are anything else. And, um, I guided all last season for, uh, Lunarita outfitters. And that's kind of one thing that all the clients said was that, you know, half the reason they wanted to do it on wild birds guided hunting, um, was because it, it's like a, a complete destination hunt. There's, there's no people around, there's no houses around. You're just out in the wilderness and, and you know chasing an animal like you said trying to best it at its own game so when you're out i would are you able to camp on that public land do like do you guys set up tents like are you setting up like camps or are you like traveling back and forth from a local motel or resort or so um all season long we're we're traveling back and forth from from where the the guide house is in patagonia okay um and so you know we're moving all over going to different places you know sometimes we drive an hour sometimes we drive two and a half hours sure just depends on what we're doing um and you know we don't we don't really camp out on the land um you could weather's nice in the winter here so it's just you got a house down there you might as well use it right good place to air out the dogs it's it's so much easier you know so um but yeah it's it's really simple it's kind of convenient right there and and there's a lot of hunting opportunities just right around that area. Got it. That makes sense. Just wasn't sure like guiding that changes everything. Right. I mean, yeah. Clients expect a certain level of comfort after a hunt. Well, depending on what you're offering. Right. But a lot of clients expect a certain level of comfort, things along those lines. Whereas I'm looking at it from my camper has 40 gallons of fresh water. I can go find a nice spot that allows camping and I can just be by myself. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, for the, for the most part, the, the hunters that don't hire guides that, that really appeals to them because they want to get out and they just kind of want to be away from everything and uh, you know, kind of do it on their own, which means they probably have their own bird dogs. They have their own gear, they have their own stuff. And so, yeah, that's a, that's an awesome way to do it. And that's, and, and that makes it more of that destination, right? Because now you're yeah, there, absolutely. Like you're in it. And like, I do that for grouse camp. Um, the past couple of years, we've done a camping out of my camper and we've stayed, we've stayed at a county campground, but that county campground, you can walk to the start of grouse habitat. So, I mean, you're there, you're, you're in it. And like, yeah, we travel, like some days we drive an hour one way or an hour, like to go chase different areas, like go explore different areas, try to get off the beaten path, try to get out of the pressure, find those less pressure birds, just have a slightly better experience. Not that, not that the experience itself isn't amazing, but like just being there and in it changes it. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, definitely thought about that. And my wife and I have talked about that. Um, just buying a camper and hauling it out for the, the weekend or, you know, a couple of days throughout the week or whatever. Um, and cut out that hour to two hour drive time and, um, 
be able just to walk out the, the door of the camper and just unleash the dogs and start hunting, you know, um, it's kind of a best case scenario. And I came, I came from tent camping and everybody's like, Oh, you're so spoiled, blah, 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 blah. And honestly, I am like the camper just changes <laughs> things, especially if you have one that's got enough of a freshwater tank. Cause you can shower now. Granted, yeah. I still do like a camping shower where I'll get wet. I'll turn the water off. I'll soap up and rinse off. But I go to bed feeling good. Still doesn't matter how sweated up I got during the day. I can be at a facility at a place with no facilities or anything like that. I still have a bathroom. I've got plenty of water for myself, the dogs. I have a shower. I can feel good. I sleep in a comfortable bed. I mean, I still tent camp. I was just camping on the river. I have nice cots still doesn't compare to a real bed, right? Like a real bed is just, is just something different. I got air conditioning if it gets really hot. I got heat if it gets really cold. One grouse camp, the weather changed. It was lows in the single digits and highs in like the upper teens to low 20s. I know for a fact my camper goes through right around 10 pounds of propane a day to keep it warm in those temperatures. Because <laughs> that was one of our trips. I'm like, well, we're already through 20 pounds of propane. We've got five days left and we're not going to make it. Let's go find someone that fills propane. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, I've been on, you know, quite a few trips where we've gone to Nebraska or uh, Kansas and, and, you know, pull up and we're driving in as, as a blizzard's rolling in and really, really happy that I decided to go with a hotel for that trip, you know? <laughs> so I understand that for sure. Yeah. The weather, even with the camper, I mean, you can tolerate inclement weather, like the rain and the snow, but it's still, a camper right like it's still a super small confined area and that trip it got tight like in the breaks of the snow we tried to get a fire going but it was so wet and it would keep snowing on and off like it's hard to get a good fire going like we were outside cooking but we were cold like we're wearing like a lot of clothing to stay warm while we're drinking whiskey and cooking food and it's like this just isn't that fun it's fun but it's not that fun compared to last year where it was really hot like during the middle of the day like we had mid 70s for temperatures and for us that's hot like that's hot for grouse season for us so the dogs are hot they're not they're they're huffing and puffing through their mouths they're not using their noses anymore we're like all right let's go back but then at night it was gorgeous got a fire sitting outside and like this this is pretty darn dang nice right now so it is fun to change that i mean it's just a different experience than going back to a motel room or a hotel room where yeah. you can do things like yeah. that. Um, there are a couple of resorts I've been to, which are really great too, where you get that motel convenience yet. They have big, they have girls at outside for every single little mini cabin. They have a group fire pit where last year I went up there for the first time. And it's actually where we're going to change grouse camp to in the upper peninsula of Michigan this year. Um, Friends of mine, like they bought a resort on a whim up there and moved their entire life from Wisconsin up there. And we went up there. I wanted to support my friends, hunt a new habitat, because why not? And we're sitting outside and there's some grouse hunters up there that have been up there for 10 days out of two weeks. They they were up there for two weeks straight. So, I mean, just random grouse hunters. We're talking birds. We're hanging out outside. And like there's guys up there for deer camp. And it's just it was this unique melting pot of people that have been going up there for years. Yet we all like all could just sit down and talk to each other and hang out because we're all up there doing the same thing, just experiencing outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. So it's fun where like these places take you. And I'm sure if I drove out to Arizona with my dog and ran into you out there somewhere, it'd be the same thing. Like if it would never, even I talked to be like, we just start chatting. Like that's the cool thing about meeting people that have those same interests. Like it's just, you can just talk to them. Yeah. In general, the, uh, the upland community is just kind of that way. I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot more open than some of the other um, hunting kind of sectors. So, yeah, I mean, I, I run into people all the time, strike up a conversation and, you know, we, we end up talking and we usually know each other from something online or something, you know, a mutual friend or something. And, um, it's hardly ever anything bad in the interaction. So it's, it's pretty neat. It's a, it doesn't seem like it, but it really is a small community. Like you're only like one, like 
what is that like six degrees of separation? I'd be shocked if it's more than one in this community. Yeah. Cause I'm pretty sure we could start looking through mutual friends lists. And even if I wasn't friends, like I guarantee you there's a mutual friend between it everywhere. Sure. Yeah. Like social media has definitely changed that. And I will agree the upland community is pretty unique where it's extremely supportive most of the time. I mean, a lot like you, you got some attitudes here and there that you run into when it comes to what people think is ethical and the conversation between, okay, is, are we talking ethics or are we talking what your opinion of sporting is? Cause that's really where the difference is. Sure. So you have, you can have that little bit, but for the most part, everybody's super helpful. Like look at all the questions like, Hey, I'm struggling for this with my dog. Like look at like NAVDA and HRCs and everything else where it's just groups of guys helping other groups, other people train their dogs. And you get that same atmosphere a lot of times on social media still in this community, which is amazing because most of social media is just so negative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know. I think duck hunting may be the most notorious for it. And uh, the upland hunting just isn't, isn't that way. You know, you meet a lot of people and it's, it's in general, I mean, half the people I meet, I'd be like, Hey, you know, you want to go hunt together tomorrow? I have no problem doing it. And uh, if you were deer hunting or duck hunting or something like that, that would, that would never happen. So um, agreed hundred percent, especially with the duck hunting, because they would talk to you and ask you what time they got, to, you got to the launch and then they make sure they're there 15 minutes before you the next day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. I'm a big duck hunter as well. And I actually want to talk to you about duck hunting. Cause you said you trained your dog for duck hunting. And I didn't realize Arizona had that much opportunity for duck hunting. So I want to roll into that next, but I think like the social media part of duck hunting, I think the young duck hunters and the inexperienced duck hunters almost make it worse. Like where, like you shouldn't be asking on social media, in my opinion, like I don't call this out cause they're learning, but you shouldn't ask like, what kind of duck is this? Like you already <laughs> shot that bird. Like the time for questioning what kind of duck this is ended as soon as you pulled the trigger and you went and got it or your dog did. At that point, you better have known it was a legal bird. Like you can't go back and ask what kind of bird this is. There was one post I remember where someone accidentally shot a grief sure. and asked what kind of duck this was. And it just blew up. And like, unfortunately it's, and like, this is where the negative part comes in. Like it, it, turned in from more of like an informational like yo take this down like like you gotta like learn to a bashing of it and then like a season-long running joke against this guy where honestly it was an <laughs> honest mistake but social media took it to such a level that it just turned it into such a negative thing whereas right. yes there's nothing good about shooting a grieve and there's nothing good about shooting a bird you haven't identified i agree like like but we don't have to treat the hunter that way yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, um, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. You know, people don't just grow up just identifying which duck is which in midair, at, you know, 50 yards and, and figure out that those, those little dynamics. And so it's something that takes duck hunters years to do. And so when somebody makes that mistake, they don't need to be shamed all over social media, but Agreed. it also speaks I mean, to the, to the complexity of some of those, those rules too. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting just how, how things are handled in different groups. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's they're hunters, just like upland hunters, just like deer hunters or turkey hunters or any other, but, uh, some groups just tend to be more kind of vicious towards, towards new hunters and things like that. So. And maybe just duck hunters are abrasive because I'm sure if you and I were hanging out in a duck blind and you missed a shot, I'd give you a hard time and you would do the same to me. But <laughs> I don't really seem to do that upland hunting. Like I don't, no, I don't, not so much. Like, we don't do that upland hunting. Like at least I don't ever do that to people upland hunting, but I'll absolutely do it to someone I'm sitting next to in a duck blind for hours. <laughs> like, so what's the difference there? Like, I don't know. I've never, like, this is the first time I've ever even talked about this. Like, how come I can give you a hard time? Like, like nice shot there, pal. Like what, what, you, what were you even aiming? Like, do you need a barn to hit at? Like what, what are you, what are you doing here compared to like, man, that bird was flying. Like, there's no way I could have caught up to it. Like, and been like, there's no way I could have hit that bird. That thing was like cruising where if it's a duck, I'd be like, dude, can't you lead? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Maybe, maybe it's out of sheer boredom. I don't know. <laughs> that could be. But am I wrong? Like... No, no, not at all. I mean, I've I've duck hunted a lot, and I spent a lot more time duck hunting in in Tennessee. Um, when I, you know, I lived in Tennessee for thirty years. I just moved out to Arizona uh, about a year ago. All right. Um, I've hunted out here for about five or six years now, but uh, just moved out here last year, and so um, yeah, it was it was a typical thing that we spent a lot more time duck hunting than we did just about anything else. Uh, simply because there aren't really huntable populations of quail in Tennessee anymore. So, sure. um, yeah, but we go out to real foot and hunt every year and, you know, at least once or twice and um, all kinds of stuff around duck hunting. And it's a different, different culture, different set of people. And, you know, like you said, it, there's definitely a lot more ribbing that goes on in the duck blind. There is out in the, the field. Yeah, I've never really put two and two together. And maybe because social media removes all filters. It, it always does. Like all filters sure. are removed. Um, maybe that's the difference is that there's just so much different personality and so much ribbing in the waterfall world that it just really comes out on social media. That's that's a possibility. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know either, but it's it's interesting though that just to think about the fact of how I treat people in the duck blind and and I'm treated in the duck blind compared to how we treat each other upland hunting. It's sure. totally different. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be the same four guys. Like it can be literally the same four guys of us in a duck blind and then go upland hunting, and all of us are the same way. Like we all treat each other different. Like it's like different expectations, or maybe upland hunting just has more class. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely a, a big dynamic there as far as how different groups of hunters interact. And um, I don't know, I enjoy, I enjoy hunting upland because a lot of people just, they're so much nicer and they, they're a lot more willing to, to share ideas and uh, they're helpful. And like you said, you can just strike up a conversation and uh, meet new people and talk about different things. Right. I agree. So I do want to ask that like, are you still duck hunting? Are there opportunities for you in Arizona or is that ship kind of sailed now that you're no longer in Tennessee? Uh, there's definitely opportunities. Um, have I figured it out? No, <laughs> but th- there's, there's ducks here. Um, they're, they're on a lot of the tanks. They're on, you know, flowing water sources. Uh, they're, they're here. I, it's going to take me a while to, to learn how to hunt them, but um, yeah, it, it's the opportunities here, but, you know, I, I haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah. They, I mean, ducks always take a, I, I don't know, ducks, every habitat's different. It's a migrating bird. It's not like, it's not like upland where I feel like it's easier. Like, I feel like once you figure out the habitat upland birds want to be in, it's really easy to figure out, okay, this is where they should be. Whereas I can find spots that look super ducky and a duck never will land in it. And I'm scratching yep. my head, like what's wrong with, with this, section of the marsh compared to that section of the marsh because they literally are identical why do you want to be 300 yards that way like there is no difference in this marsh <laughs> well i mean there is though right i mean right you're, you really you got to break it down and make a study out of it the same thing you do with with quail and upland and grouse and everything else and um that's that's one one reason i always tell people you know no matter what you're hunting you really you, you do have to kind of pay attention you have to look at at all the factors in the environment and how it affects your game and and what you're pursuing um because those little things matter and and the quail we're kind of more in tune with it because we've been 
hammered over the years about habitat so much by different things like well forever and and sure uh you know all those those people um game agency stuff like that but on ducks it's a little more a little different you know it's not quite as ingrained in us and yeah, you are it can right. be as simple as, as the wind and, and how it comes into the to the marsh, or it could be, you know, whether it's shaded, whether just just little subtle factors. And uh, yeah, but the same thing applies to, to quail as well, you know. You are true, because there is going to be an environmental difference on why they want to be 300 yards away. And it, you're, it, you're right, it could be just as subtle as, is there shade? Yeah. Um, I mean, it could just be as subtle as that. Is there a slight difference in the way the wind's coming through there? So it's easier for them to land so they don't feel like there's a predator issue. I mean, there are subtle differences. You're right. But if you look at it from like big picture, like it really looks like, why would they be there? Like compared to yeah. here. <laughs> I, I, I agree. It's it's definitely harder to pick out those differences with, with ducks. And a lot of times I sit back and scratch my head and I'm like, why, why, why are they doing that? You know? And it's something that maybe we don't even, we can't even see from our perspective and, and to the ducks it matters, but to us, we just don't even know exist. I also think ducks are sometimes just a really weary bird. Cause I like to watch ducks in spring, like, cause they haven't sure. had pressure for a while and you'll watch a flock of ducks circle a hundred on the water, live ducks quacking, swimming. They'll circle three or four times and they won't ever commit and land. And it's like, what, why? Like, like, why did these ducks not like those ducks? They're live ducks. They're not decoys. They're all in there chattering, feeding, having a ball, splashing around. Like, you can't have any more motion or a realistic environment because it's as real as it gets. And they're like, yeah, nope, see ya. And they're gone over the horizon. It's like, <laughs> what, what What just happened here? Like, like, I'd love to know what you didn't like about this live spread of ducks quacking at you. Yeah, I mean... It, it kind of makes sense, though. I mean, you think about ducks and, and their predators and how they're always out in the open. And, um, they have to be wary. Otherwise, they get slammed by a, a hawk from above or, you know, something like that. Right. But, yeah, it's uh, they, they do have an element of mystery to them when it comes to where they're going to sit down and what they're doing. I think that's what makes it fun, too, because if you can... I read way back in the day, like a joke. It's like, if, you're, if you can fool them with plastic, you're doing them a favor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get them to commit to decoys, you're doing them a favor because they'll never survive in the real life. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, there, there is a mystery to ducks, which does make it fun because you can feel like you're doing everything right and they'll just never commit. And then you can have a day where it's like you feel like you can't blow your call and you don't have good cover and they come in like nothing's wrong. And it's like, I like, and you can be on the X yeah. both times. Like both yeah. times you can have scouted you can be on that X and it's like completely different experiences, which just has you scratching your head. Like, okay, what's really different today. And you just like, there's nothing to me that's different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's been days where we've, we've sat on the edge of a pond uh, where there's no grass. We're sitting just in the dirt and our feet, we got waders on, we just got our feet in the water, you know, completely exposed. And literally the tallest thing around us is a, is an inch tall grass. And so, you know, we're not, we're not even in a blind or anything and the ducks are landing on the, on the pond. And then other days it's like, you could be entirely enclosed in a layout blind brushed in and you wiggle one little branch and they're gone. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, they, they definitely have more mystery to them than a lot of other game for sure. I think that's what makes it fun. And also, the whole atmosphere. I know we were just giving like the whole ribbing thing a hard time, but it's part of that atmosphere. It's the sitting around, having fun with your friends, drinking coffee. We'll cook breakfast sometimes like just, or eat yeah. granola bars, whatever's easier, like, or like Twinkies or something stupid. Who knows what we'd have. But I mean, it's that whole environment of like, you don't have to be quiet. You don't have to be like, if there's no birds around, like you can stand up, you can stretch, you can talk, you can joke around. Sure. Like, like I always joke around and tell people they're like, Oh, what, what's duck hunting? Like, I'm like, it's 30 seconds of serious and 10 minutes of boredom and, and, and crap talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, for fidgety hunters, it's, it's definitely a, a good way to go. You know, you, you can like, it's, it's not really go time until you see birds on the horizon. And so until that point, you're just hanging out with the guys and it's, it's a good time. Right. And normally it was my dog, like my lab would spot them well before I would. <laughs> Yeah, and you can, like the you lab can would if pick you put your 
<laughs> yeah, you put your lab somewhere you can kind of see them out of your peripheral. You can you can see their head kind of jerk and their ears perk up, and you know they they know it's on the way before you even have a chance to see them. I, I feel like a good duck dog hears those whistling wings miles before you can even see them. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great. Which which is just one thing I love. So, what what's the main species of like ducks in Arizona? Like, is, is it on mallards or are you getting a lot of teal, gadwall? Do you get like pintails sliding through by you, like to get out on the West Coast? I would say I've seen more widgeon than just about anything else. All right. Um, they're, they're pretty strong on the Pacific Flyway. Um, but yeah, I, I think we've seen a lot of widgeon. Um, of course, there's, gad, there's gadwalls everywhere, sure. but there's a good right. amount of gadwalls and um, a good amount of cinnamon teal too, and green That's wings cool. as well. But but um, yeah, I would say out of all the ducks I saw last season, I would I would wager probably half for widgeon. All right. Whereas like half for me is like mallards, your typical mallards here. Like that's what we get. That's our main bird. You get a cinnamon up here. Like it's lucky. Like we do not see a lot. If we do, it's super early in the season, and there is no color to that bird. Like yeah. you're trying to figure out exactly like what kind of teal is this? Like, you know, it's a teal. Yeah. You can tell it's a teal by the way it's flying and its size, but then you get it and you're like, this isn't what I thought it was. Like it's a teal, but what kind of teal is this actually? Yeah. That's, that's one cool thing is that most of the time, by the time the birds have made it to Southern Arizona, they they're pretty well plumed out. And so you shoot some really nice, like mature cinnamon teal, uh, mature widgeons, you know, get a nice cotton top on them. And, um, some really, really pretty birds compared to even in Tennessee, a lot of the birds we shot were still immature when they made it to Tennessee. Sure. So um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat. See that see, I always wanted to get to Arizona for quail, but now you're like, now I'm thinking like, I'm going to have to, if I can make, when I, when I make it down there, I'm going to have to bring waders with and, and some steel shot. Cause there's no way I'm not coming back with a cinnamon teal for the wall. Like that'd just be, that'd just be awesome. Every every tank I go by, I check to see if it's got a cinnamon till sitting on it. You know, just <laughs> just looking. I've got a I got a spot in the wall in the in the hole in my taxidermy waiting for a cinnamon till. You know, so <laughs> so you live there and you're still chasing this one. <laughs> yeah, we I found one uh, last year that had a good good chance at, and uh, my brother in law was with me and it it swung over his way and he just missed it and you know. Aww. I was like, man, that's too bad. But you know, it was it, they're, it like you said, they're they're wary and and that's why most people hunt here. From what I've what I've gathered is that you know there's a lot of pond hopping and a lot less uh, setup and decoy spreads and that kind of stuff. But uh, all right, like I said, I, I don't really know. I haven't figured it out. If if there is running water and places to set up decoys, that's that's where I want to be for sure. Sure, sure, absolutely. That's just all part of the experience and. Don't get me wrong. I like a good jump shoot and I've got some woody holes when, when water's a little high and the acorns are down and with how they come in there, like you're not setting up decoys, but it's like hunting like no. ankle deep flooded timber and they come flying through the woods. And I'm like, or you can walk the woods and jump shoot. Like that's fun. But yeah. there's something about setting out, like there's something about O dark 30 slopping through the mud, getting all your decoys, how you think they should be before you change them again later on. Cause it wasn't how far you thought they was and everything <laughs> else. And then just sitting yeah, back absolutely. and watching the sunrise over. I'm like, that's just an, ex that's just an experience I truly enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. If, um, you know, when we're taking clients out if, if we have, uh, some clients, you know, they, they only shoot seal shot and that's, that's cool. Cause when we, if we want to go jump a tank and they have a license for it, it we can go do that. And sure. so as we're, as we're moving from spot to spot, we may stop at a tank and, and check, see if it's got ducks and, and go jump it. But um, yeah, I do. I do. It's on my list of things to do to figure out how to, how to duck hunt in Arizona. It, it sounds kind of like an oxymoron, but um, there's opportunity here. I just, just got to get it figured out. That's good. And it's always fun to like figure out a new place or, and you're doing like you've hunted sure. Arizona, you said for years, but now you're there full time. You're guiding you're learning that much more habitat, that much more technique, everything else. So there's always fun to put that puzzle together in a new area and be like, all right, there's birds here, but where are they and how do I hunt them? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, it brings more excitement back into it. Now, 
you can think you have the world figured out when it comes to like any type of bird and they'll just show you you're wrong. So you're always learning, but you go to a completely new area. Like you really have to get back into that mindset of, I almost don't know what I'm doing and I need to like, stop, take a look at the habitat and really break this down to figure it out. Yeah. And you know, Arizona's kind of, kind of good for that too. Cause there's, it's not just quail here. I mean, we have uh, blue grouse and we have, you know, uh, band-tailed pigeon and, and even chucker up towards uh, Utah. So um, there's opportunity to, to learn how to hunt a lot of different species here. That's all. Diversity is fun because that's different habitat, different birds. It, it's always fun when you have that much. Like I didn't realize you had blue grouse there. So that's cool. Like I, that's the first yeah. I'd really heard of that. Um, there's, there's not many. There's a lot of people that have hunted them for a lot of years and not, not been very successful, but there's also people that, that usually kill, you know, one or two a year, every, every year. So, um, it's not ideal bluegrass hunting, but they're, but they're here. You can, you sure. can do it. Uh, we found them lot. last year and, and we watched them sail off the top of the mountain out in front of the dogs. So, you know, they're, they're there. We just got to get on them and, and get them, get them held down a little better, but yeah. So is that, that had to have been bittersweet because you finally found some habitat that had them and then the, and then they wouldn't hold for the dogs. Yeah. So luckily I got my first bluegrass last year in New Mexico and then I came to Arizona and spent, you know, a, about four days or five days hunting them and finally started getting the habitat nailed down and getting, getting them kind of honed in and uh, started finding them. And then, finally got, got some points on them. And as we're coming up, we, you know, there was point and flush and a point and flush and point. And eventually they just hit the side of the mountain and just took off like 2000 feet down the mountain. Sure. So, but you know, they just, they leaves it open for next season to, to go up there and, and try to get one. And that's a new species for the dog. And that always takes a little bit of time for them to figure out what's going on and how much pressure that bird can have. And it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that go on there for to like really get good dog work when you're chasing multiple species. And that's not easy yeah. a lot of times. Right. Cause you can always say, Oh yeah, my dog should just hold a point, but how much pressure can that bird take? Like come like middle of grouse season, my dog has figured out like sometimes there's a lot of times it's pointing a bird from 30 yards away like that. Like yeah. if it puts any more pressure on it than that, that bird's going to break. Whereas in the beginning of the season or chasing woodcock, she can almost have her nose in that bird. Otherwise it'll run. Like in the beginning of the season, grouse will run. And I find later in the season, they'll just flush. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from my limited experience on blue grouse, it seems like they're, they're pretty weary birds. You know, they, they don't sit around and just wait for the dog to they get close <laughs> to them. They're, if they, if they know the dog's around, they're going to, they're going to either fly up into a tree, you know, or they're going to head off the side of the mountain. Sure. And so, it just didn't didn't work out for us in Arizona, but like I said, luckily we got it done in New Mexico, so that was pretty cool. Right, that's awesome. And then you're in Arizona now, so you'll get it figured out. You got time. You got plenty of time to get it figured out, as long yeah. as the population doesn't take some weird decline and there's still a focus on habitat and they still have good breeding numbers. You got plenty of time. Oh yeah, but yeah, that's that's probably my my big goal this year is to to get a, a blue grouse and then you know go attempt to to chucker hunt up near the grand canyon somewhere and see if i can't get an arizona chucker that'd be cool that'd be real fun <laughs> yeah absolutely well i'm gonna give these last few minutes left to you we'll start to wrap it up and you can thank you can let everybody know they can find you on instagram facebook whatever you have for social media platforms and then if you want to shout out who you're guiding for this year anybody else you want to thank i'll give this a little bit of time for you yeah, I mean my, my Instagram is just bird dog in AZ. So um, you can look it up on there and that's just my my upland account. So um, and then I'm I'm guiding for for Lunarita Outfitters with Kelly Kirby. Um, great guy, great great outfit. And you know, if anybody's wanting to come to Arizona, you know, at least at least give them a call. We fill up pretty quick. Probably booked a good amount already just this part of the summer, but you know, there's could be some places open, but, um, yeah, that's about it. So, uh, thanks for having me on the show. 
Yeah, absolutely. And to everybody listening, I'll make sure to drop those links to his Instagram and also to the Lunarita Outfitter in there. So you guys can easily just click on it to find him and find the Outfitter. If you're looking at getting over to Arizona and chasing some quail over and maybe jump shooting a cinnamon teal. So I'd, I'd shoot steel shot because if you, if you go out there and you don't have that tag and you have that opportunity that like coming from up in Wisconsin, man, I'd be kicking myself. I'd be there with steel yeah. shot and duct tags. <laughs> There's no way I wouldn't be. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Jacob. It's been great. I learned a lot about Arizona. I keep every time I have someone else come on from Arizona, I learn a little bit more, like prickly pear cactus this time, and bring you know those fires and <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah. Either so, either that, or you're gonna be you're gonna be uh, carrying a dog back to the back to the truck because it's covered in in spines. So yeah. Yeah, that's I, I keep a needle driver. I, I have it for a different reason. I keep a hemostat and a needle driver on me in case we run into a porcupine. I guess they just can just stay in the vest because these porcupines don't run. <laughs> <laughs> to all my listeners, I appreciate everybody. I appreciate you as always. Without you, I wouldn't do this. And until next time, keep chasing that experience. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode here on Paddle and Finn. Be sure to drop a five-star rating, a thumbs up, or smash that subscribe button on any platform you're listening in on. Be sure to check us out on Waypoint TV, waypointtv.com. Make sure you sign up for the Fantasy Kayak Fishing League at paddleandfin.com forward slash fantasy. You could support this show through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash paddleandfin. Don't forget to check out the website, paddleandfin.com. Catch us on YouTube. If you got a question, comment, or want to see a future guest on the show, be sure to email us at paddleandfin at gmail.com. Shout out to our show supporters, Yak Gadget. You can check out all the fine kayak accessories at yakgadget.com. Pelican Professional. For all your cases, coolers, and lighting needs, go to pelican.com. Rocktown Adventures your Midwest premier paddle sports destination, go to rocktownadventures.com. Eastport Marina, the beautiful destination on Dale Hollow Lake. If you're looking for lodging, kayaks, kayak accessories, or anything fishing related on the beautiful Dale Hollow Lake, go to eastport.info. Jigmasters Jigs, when in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com and fill your tackle boxes today.